If you have your Bibles, open with me to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, verse 16. Be in Luke chapter 1, verse 16 and 17 this morning. Luke chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. There are, um, there are lots of things that women go through in the nine months leading up to having a baby. A lot of things that, that let's face it, as dads are, are, are just strange. I know I'm running the risk of saying anything about this right now, but I'm going to do it anyway, okay? So bear with me. We all know about the, the late night cravings. Those are certainly odd. The midnight runs to the store for pickles and ice cream. Strange. Get it? There's the crying for no apparent reason. That happens too. That's a real thing, right? Aren't these baby clothes so cute? And you're like, they're fine. What, what's wrong with you? <laughs> now, the, the, there is a season right before a woman gives birth, about a month or two before, where she goes through this period called nesting. Many of you know what I'm talking about, if you've ever had this experience or you've been a part of this experience. It's this really strange time where she goes through the house and she cleans everything from top to bottom. Most of the time this includes also making a little room for the, the baby to come home in. And so you come home, you might come home from work and you just find every ounce of furniture that you own out on the lawn and your wife with rubber gloves from fingertip to elbow and a gas mask on so she doesn't get hurt by the chemicals, just cleaning everything from top to bottom. I remember when my wife was going through something like this, we wash all the baby clothes in that Dreft soap that's like not, you know, for sensitive skin, just wash everything like 900 times and then hang it in its right place in the closet. And there's paint all over the place as we're making this room for the baby to live in. And now, well, I find some of this humorous, even as I think back on my own wife's nesting time, three times of having, having children. If you really think about it, it's a pretty normal thing. It's a very normal thing. Now, it might look different from home to home. There might be some that go through and do very extreme things and some maybe not so much. But the closer that you get to the birth of a child, there's a heightened sensitivity in the household about how we prepare the family and the home for the new addition that's about to, to join us. The family begins to be prepared. If you already have children, they're told from the beginning, this is what it's going to be like. There's going to be a new baby here. This is how your life is going to change. The family is getting prepared for this really significant event to take place. That after the arrival of the baby is not the proper time to begin preparing the family for this addition. It's the wrong time to begin cleaning everything from top to bottom. That's the wrong time to begin making a room when the, is when the baby arrives. All of that needs to be done in the time leading up to the arrival of this child. We're now fully immersed in the Christmas season. And with this season comes a lot of hustle and bustle, as they say. We are not short of commercials telling us what we're supposed to get our spouse for Christmas or those that we love. There are billions of Christmas parties that you can go to 
There's family of all sorts that's pulling you this way and that. There's tons of food to eat, so our waistlines are going to expand. And all of this is preparing you for the kind of holiday they want you to have. Stores, of course, want your holiday to be filled with presents under the tree. Or in the driveway now. Apparently that's a thing. In case you're looking to get me something for Christmas. (laughs) Your extended family wants your Christmas to be filled with get-togethers and activities. Now I'm not saying there's anything inherently wrong with any of those things. But what I'm saying is there are many things, especially during this season, that are vying for your attention. And they're preparing you for how your Christmas season will go. This morning we're going to take a look at a, a close look at how the Lord prepares His own people. The text that we'll be looking at is talking about John the Baptist and the birth of John the Baptist as it's foretold. But we'll also be zooming out to the rest of the, the text of the Bible to look how historically God has prepared His people for the advent of Christ. And so while we'll, we'll be in Luke 1, 16-17, we'll also be in the whole chapter uh, 1 of Luke, and then we'll also be looking at the Bible as a whole in the Old Testament as well. So don't get comfortable in our text. With that in mind, let's, let's look at the text that we're going to be kind of using as base camp in Luke chapter 1, verses 16 and 17 says this, And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Now, in our text this morning, we fall right into the middle of a scene where a priest named Zechariah is in the middle of the temple offering a sacrifice of incense on the altar. And there are some important things that are going on in this chapter that if you're not well steeped in Jewish culture, like none of us are, that we'll just miss if we just read through it on a cursory reading of Luke chapter 1. You can see all the way back in verse 9 that Zechariah is chosen by lot to serve in the temple according to the custom of priests, it says. And we also see in verse 5, if you look there in verse 5, that he is in Abijah's division of priests, which is one of the 24 divisions of priests in, uh, of the priesthood in Israel, which makes up about 18,000 priests. So he's one priest in a division of 24 priests, uh, pri- priesthood divisions of about 18,000 individual priests that served in the temple. Now, each division of the priesthood was responsible for about two different weeks during the year to show up at the temple and serve there in some capacity. Some of that would fall during major holidays. Other times would just be regular times throughout the year. But they had two weeks during the year that their division was responsible to show up and to do something in the temple. Now, Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth live outside of Jerusalem in the, in the Galilean uh, hill country, in the, in the Judean hill country. Whereas a chief priest would live in Jerusalem, they live outside of Jerusalem. 
And so they're called in for about two weeks, two different weeks during the year to perform various duties. Now, once the particular division, so in this case Abijah's division, would show up at the temple, they're given the duties that they will perform during the week. Each one of them may have a different task, a different assigned job. Now, the particular job that we find Zechariah doing when the story opens, putting incense on the altar, is a job that the priest only gets to do once in his entire life. Only one time in his entire life will he actually do the job that we find Zechariah doing in chapter 1. And he's chosen by lottery to do it. So when he arrives, that's when they draw straws or roll whatever they do to, to, to divide up the responsibilities, and they choose this person who's going to actually go in and do this task. And so we see that in verse 7, not only is all of this true, but he's also very old. Zechariah is old. Uh, in verse 7, Luke tells us that he's advanced in years. And so if you put all this together, Luke is painting a picture of the very height of Zechariah's priestly career. Zechariah, if you'll indulge me for a second, has been going to the Super Bowl every year since he was a young man. But this one year, his seat is called to be the one that goes on the field at halftime and throws the footballs through the hole in the Dr. Pepper bottle. All right? So Zechariah is, this is a special thing that we find Zechariah doing. Imagine for just a moment the nerves. Imagine the pressure that's on him at this very moment. Now, even if he's been training to do this, even if he's well prepared for this, you know he's nervous. Even just because he's never actually done it before. God uses this moment... <laughs> to appear and to tell him this. Now, that's borderline comedy is what that is, right? It's okay. that it, It's kind of funny that here Zechariah is very sensitive. You know he's nervous. And the angel interrupts his service in the temple with an important news bulletin. Gabriel has come to inform Zechariah that he and his wife will have a child. Now, I wonder if we did a poll, how many mothers and fathers in this room had an angel appear to them to tell them they were going to have a child? I don't, I don't mean, I just knew. I don't mean that. I don't mean, I had a feeling. I don't mean that. I mean, an, a genuine, bona fide, honest-to-goodness angel just appeared to you to tell you that you're going to have a child. I'm going to go out on a limb and say none of us have had that happen to us. Which raises the question, why does God send an angel to inform Zechariah of this news? Now, this isn't a virginal conception like what we're going to see later on in Luke, if you continue reading. This is like any other conception. This is in every way normal, it would appear. But it becomes clear that the Lord is preparing Zechariah for something significant. But if you're in Luke's audience, as we are, 
And if you're even remotely familiar with the Old Testament story, as I hope we are, then you can't help but recall a similar couple in the days of yore that were also similarly barren. In fact, I think Luke wants your your mind to be drawn back to the Old Testament to think about Abraham and Sarah. Both Zechariah and Abraham are old. Both of them have an angel come to them to tell them that their wives are going to have children. And both of them, it's going to be miraculously uh, done because of their old age. Both Zechariah and Abraham say almost the exact same thing in response to this revelation. Abraham says, how am I to know that? And Zechariah responds, how shall I know this? Both of them respond with almost the same words. Both of them appeal to their old age as a reason why God can't possibly mean that He's actually going to do this. Zechariah says, For I'm an old man, my wife is advanced in years. Abraham says, Shall a child be born to a man who's a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? There are enough similarities in the story, enough cues, that it seems as though Luke is drawing our minds back to this story in the Old Testament. And what we find when we think back to Abraham is that this isn't the only time that God has actually prepared His people. In fact, God has a pattern of preparing His people for what He is about to do. First, we see that God prepared Abraham for uh, the blessing of the covenant. God prepared Abraham for the blessing of of the covenant. If you'll think back to Genesis chapter 3. This is before Abraham, but if you'll think back to Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve are in the garden and they've taken from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So their innocence is stripped away and the Lord proceeds to render His judgment to Adam, to Eve, but first to the serpent. And as He's pronouncing judgment on the serpent... He also gives a promise of the future. And this is what he says in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. This is addressed to the, to the serpent. He says, I will put enmity between you, the serpent, and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So he's addressing this punishment to, the, to Satan, who's masquerading as the serpent. He says, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So there is a promise to the serpent that although he's had a temporary victory over the human race through the original sin of this original couple, Adam and Eve, his victory is going to be short-lived. There will come one, one of, of Eve's offspring, that will bruise, that will crush the head of this serpent, crush Satan's head. Bruce Waltke says it like this, God announces a battle of champions, and there will be a seed that conquers Satan. Because natural Adam has failed, ultimately the woman's offspring must be a heavenly Adam. This is the central promise that gives weight to virtually the whole Old Testament. As the biblical authors, as the Jewish people continue to trace the lineage of the kings throughout the Bible, looking for this promised seed that will eventually do battle with Satan. The entire book of Genesis 
is about tracing this promised seed. The entire book of Genesis is written to trace this promised seed that was promised back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. But it's not until chapter 12 of Genesis that we find which family is going to bring forth this seed. God singles out a man named Abraham, or in the text of Genesis chapter 12, he's called Abram. He gives to him a promise. We see this in chapter 12, verse 3. He says, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So we find out that it's going to be through Abraham's seed that this promised snake killer, if you will, is going to come. And so we trace this seed through all the kings of the Old Testament. And every one of them starts to show a little bit of promise. Like, think back to David. But every single one of them, through the entire Old Testament, fail spectacularly. But what I want you to see is that here's the promise to Abraham when he's 76 years old that he's going to have a child. And it's nearly 24 years after God's initial promise of a child that he actually has the child. That he fulfills the promise. Between his initial promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 and the eventual fulfillment in Genesis in the birth of Isaac in chapter 21, there are by some accounts 11 tests from the Lord to Abraham. 11 tests of his character. 11 tests of his mettle. And many of these tests he fails. He lies twice telling the enemy that his wife is his sister. In spite of the fact that God has promised to make of him a great nation and that he right now remains childless, he goes into the land of an enemy and he lies to save his own neck as if to question the Lord's promise to him. And ultimately, these tests culminate in one last final test, the twelfth test, after the birth of Isaac, where he's told to take his son, his only son, the one he loves, up to Mount Moriah and sacrifice him. Now, God didn't have to do any of this. God could have simply just blessed Sarah with a child, and the biblical authors could have traced the seed all the way to Jesus. Or maybe had no idea who the seed was. And then Jesus shows up and he starts healing people saying he's the Messiah. And they go, this guy's it. That could have happened too. But the promise to Abraham was more than a genetic promise. It wasn't just a genetic promise. It wasn't just about a child. It was a promise about covenant faithfulness. And God wasn't merely interested in just giving Abraham a child, but producing in Abraham a heart that was devoted to God in faith. That's what he's interested in producing in Abraham. A faith that he would eventually pass on to his family. He actually says as much in the text of Genesis. Before, sacrifice, before the sacrificing of Isaac, God tells Abraham, take your son, your only son, the one you love. Take your son, your only son, whom you love, up to Mount Moriah and sacrifice him. But after Abraham is faithful, he carries out this, uh, his end of the deal. He believes the Lord is good and that the Lord is going to do something about this. 
So he gets his men and they go, they head towards Mount Moriah. And once he gets there, he tells his men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come to you again. So he's confident as they get there that the Lord is going to raise him from the dead if he has to. The Lord is going to do something here. I don't know what, but something is going to happen and the boy and I are going to return. After the Lord stops him, God says to him twice, twice he says to him, I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Now, notice that Isaac is no longer, after the test, is no longer his son, his only son, the one he loves. Isaac now is his son, his only son. Abraham has been tested for some 40 years up to this point, and he's proven himself to be faithful to the Lord. And so God tells him in Genesis chapter 2, verse 16, Because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. That's what he was producing in Abraham. You see, God did not just bless Abraham with the promised offspring. God first prepared his heart for the blessing of the covenant. That was the point. He was preparing his heart for the blessing of the covenant. Now, we could, we could certainly see the Lord preparing the hearts of his people through the prophets. We could spend all day in the Old Testament and see him preparing the hearts of his people through the prophets, whether that was coming judgment or promise restoration. Many times, he tells them, as we're in the minor prophets in our, in our small groups on Sunday morning, we're seeing that over and over and over again. He's preparing continually his people for conquering and for restoration. But in the interest of time, let's look back at Luke, where we'll see that God also prepared Zechariah for the blessing of the child of promise. God prepared Zechariah for the blessing of the child of promise, which is our next point. So resuming our story in Luke 1, here's Zechariah in the temple. He's serving at the altar of incense for the first time in his whole life. And this angel appears before him, before the altar, and scares the living daylights out of him. He's terrified. He's bound to be tense already, and so... I'm sure seeing the angel Gabriel there standing next to the altar doesn't help his anxiety at all. And so Luke tells us in verse 12 that Zechariah is troubled. The word literally means to cause inward turmoil or to throw into confusion. Troubled would be putting it mildly. He's disturbed. He's told in verses 13 to 17 that he and Elizabeth are going to have a child. And he's even told what the purpose of that child is going to be, which we'll talk about more in the next point. But suffice it to say that he's told in no uncertain terms, right here by Gabriel, that this child is going to be the forerunner to the Messiah. And so he knows that this kid is going to be special. But how does he respond? What does he say to the angel? May it be as the Lord has directed. Is that what he says? No, that's not what he says. He responds similar to the way Abraham responds, How shall I know this? 
For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. Now Abraham had limited knowledge of God. Zechariah is a priest who has the whole Old Testament memorized. Zechariah should know better. Gabriel is obviously offended by Zechariah's question. And so you'll see there in verse 19, he says, I'm Gabriel. You just hear the tone in his voice. What do you mean, how will you know? I'm here telling you. I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. So Zechariah is given a sign. He's given it. It's probably not a sign that he desires, but he's given a sign. He's stricken mute until the kid comes and until he names him John. But what I want you to see is much like we saw with Abraham, how Zechariah changes from this nervous priest in the temple that sees the angel and questions him. And it happens all the way down. In, it starts in verse 59. So follow it all the way down in chapter 1 to verse 59. So we see there that eight days after the child is born, the family goes into the temple to name the child. And they ask Elizabeth what she wants to name the kid. And she says, John. Which is very strange because they don't have any family members named John. Which would obviously have been a very strange thing to do is name your kid something different than one of your family members or different than his father. And so, they motion to Zechariah, who's standing right there, who's mute, and he makes a sign that he wants to write it down. And so, he opens, uh, he gets the tablet, and he writes down John's name on the tablet. And immediately after he names him John, his mouth is open. Just as Angel Gabriel said. But look at how his heart has changed when he opens his mouth to speak the words of prophecy, starting in verse 68. So look there in 68. He says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember His holy covenant, the oath that He swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve Him without fear in holiness and righteousness before Him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare His ways, to give knowledge of salvation to His people, in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet in the way of peace. What a difference nine months of silence makes in a person's heart. Nine months of complete silence leads him to the point that not only is he convinced that his child is very important, but that his child is a sign that God in his day 
is going to bring about the Messiah that he made promises to Abraham and David and implicitly there to Adam and Eve as he's punishing the serpent in the garden. That he's raising up the Messiah in his day. Zechariah is now ready to go on and do what is required of him. To raise this child of promise. To not let wine touch his lips as the angel Gabriel tells him back in the temple. To do what is required. The last thing that I want you to see is that through John the Baptist, which is our last point, God prepared his people for covenant renewal. God, through John the Baptist, prepared his people for covenant renewal. Go back to verse 16 and 17. There are a handful of things that we're told, that that Gabriel tells us, that John is going to do for the people of Israel. First thing you see there in verse 16 is John will convert people. He says in verse 16, He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. The word turn there is the same word that appears several times in the New Testament for conversion. This is pre-conversion conversion. They will t- he will turn the, the, uh, the children of Israel, turn their hearts to the Lord in repentance. The second thing that we see there is that John will preach to the people. In verse 17, Gabriel says, He will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. So like Elijah, he will be a prophet who will preach to the powerful. He will not break in spite of being uh, preaching to the powerful. In spite of the pressure that he's under, he will not break. He will be a preacher of preachers. And we see that in the life of John the Baptist. The third thing that he says, John will restore the people to covenant faithfulness. You see the next thing that he says there, he will, ter- to, he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. Now this is a direct quote straight out of Malachi 4 verse 6. Now Malachi chapter 4 is chronologically the last words that the Lord delivers to the children of Israel through the mouth of a prophet. It's the last words. Then we get 400 years of silence, and then John the Baptist shows up. And he says to him that he will, the, Elijah will come, this person, John the Baptist, will come, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. The implication in Malachi and the implication in the Gospels is that the children of Israel have strayed far from where their forefathers were, where Abraham, where Isaac and Jacob, where David was. They have strained so far from their fathers that they don't know each other anymore. Isaiah picks up on this in Isaiah 63 and he says this, For you are our father, talking to God, though Abraham does not know us, and Israel does not acknowledge us. He's picking up on the same idea. The forefathers don't even recognize their children anymore. They're so disobedient. They don't follow the Lord in any way. They've strayed so far from obedience that the Lord requires. But by preaching repentance, John is going to turn the hearts of the children back to their fathers and the hearts of the fathers back to their children. That's what I think he means by the next phrase when he says, the obedient to the wisdom of the just. The disobedient to the wisdom of the just. They're the disobedient ones. They're going to turn back to the wisdom of the forefathers that have come before them, to Abraham, to Moses, and David. Fourth, he says, ultimately, John will prepare people for Jesus. 
John will prepare people for Jesus. The last phrase Gabriel uses, which um, is his ultimate purpose in all of this, is to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So the Lord, through John, is preparing His people and their hearts for the coming kingdom of God. If Jesus is laying down the foundation for the kingdom of God, John is coming through beforehand and preparing the dirt on which the foundation is going to be poured. John is the one preparing the hearts of his people to be ready for the message that Jesus is going to preach. Through all of human history, even as far back as the punishment handed down to Adam and Eve and to Satan, God has been nesting. God has been preparing His people for thousands of years for the coming of this Christ child. The snake crusher. The one that's going to do battle with Satan. He's been preparing the hearts of His children ever since the garden. What is, God's, what is God building to? What's He getting to? What's His purpose? Why is He preparing the hearts of His people for this coming child? For us, the story doesn't stop at the incarnation. When God took on human flesh, the story culminates in the cross of Calvary. The story doesn't end with the birth of Christ. It goes all the way through the cross of Calvary. So God has been preparing mankind to see what his greatest problem is. And he makes it unequivocally clear that your greatest problem is you. Your biggest problem is your own sin. Our biggest problem is our own sin. And that it puts us rightly deserving of the wrath of God. But it's this Jesus, this baby that lives the sinless life we never could and there on the cross faces the wrath of God and offers us his righteousness to be received by faith. For us, the story doesn't stop at the incarnation, but it continues through Resurrection Sunday. I gotta say, if you're, if you're here, maybe that story's new to you. Or if you've never given much thought to it, you don't understand it. It's our duty to tell you that every single one of us in this room is rightly deserving of the wrath of God. There's nobody in here that's innocent. Not one person. And yet God who is holy sent His Son to die for us. It's right to ask, What's the point of all this? Brothers and sisters, God's work throughout history tells us something really significant about the sinful human heart. It needs to be prepared. It needs to be warmed. God has primed the pump of the human heart for thousands of years before Jesus came into the world. He readied the human heart for thousands of years before Jesus came into the world. He went to great lengths to give symbols and signs to people. 
to give sacrificial lambs and tabernacles and temples, all of which is preparing people for the incarnation and ultimately for Calvary. It's one long preparation process. Similarly for us, Advent, this season that we're in, prepares our hearts to treasure the significance of the incarnation. In other words, parents, you can't expect to wake up on Christmas morning, open up to Luke chapter 2, and read the story that you find there, and expect your children to capture the real meaning of Christmas. That's just not going to happen. The human heart has to be prepared. And that's neglecting our job as parents, preparing our heart, the hearts of our children and our own hearts, for that matter, for the incarnation of Jesus. Now, if you truly believe that the significance of this season that we celebrate is the incarnation of the chosen seed, the snake killer, the Christ child, is it reflected in your schedule at Christmas? Are you so busy with parties and festivities and presents that leading your children through the Christmas story and helping them to understand what, what it is that we're celebrating takes a back seat? Is the significance of the incarnation reflected in your budget that you spend this Christmas? Do your children hear Jesus is the reason for the season, but do they sense that it's really about getting everything that they asked for? Do they hear it's all about Jesus, but do they see naughty and nice lists and spying elves? That goes for anyone, not just parents. Through salvation history, God has prepared the hearts of His people so that they may be ready to receive the blessing of salvation. He has primed the pump. So at Christmas, we have to take great care to prepare our hearts for what we're about to see, what we're about to celebrate in the significance of the Incarnation. And make no mistake about it, the entire culture is united in its effort to take your attention away from the real significance of this season. Your hearts are being prepared. But what are they being prepared for? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that as we think about the coming of Christ, that you prepare our hearts. We cannot do this work on our own. We need help. Our own sin, it gets in the way. Our own desire for things gets in the way. Our own affinity for things we see and on TV and inspires in us jealousy and greed and all kinds of things. By nature, we, we want what we don't have. With all of that coming at us, we pray for help. May our church, Emmanuel Baptist Church, be wholly focused 
on the reason that we celebrate this. May our minds be taken to Calvary, where we see not only a baby in a manger, but we see um, a man, a holy God-man on a cross, taking for us the punishment we deserve. May that thought, the connection of Christmas and Easter, be ever on our minds. Allow us as, whether it be students or adults, to not get distracted with all the many things that we've got going on right here at the end of the year. But to put that away, to think for a moment on what you accomplished in Christ. And may it bring in us, may it result in a fervency of our affections towards you. That our worship be genuine. That our evangelism be real and coming from a genuine desire to love you and to see others come to you. Help to focus us this Christmas, Lord, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.